0: This podcast is produced in collaboration with the Sheikh Zayed Book Award. The Sheikh Zayed Book Award is one of the Arab world's most prestigious literary prizes, showcasing the stimulating and ambitious work of writers, translators, researchers, academics, and publishers advancing Arab literature and culture around the globe. Today's guest, Imen Mersel, was awarded the SZBA in 2021 in the Category of Literature for her book, fiathar Anayet Zayet, In the Footsteps of Anayet Zayet, published by Al-Khutub Khan Library in 2019. The award is now open for submissions for its 16th edition. To find out more, visit register.zayedaward.ae. Again, that's register.zayedaward.ae. Dot dot
1: in the archive that was to become a museum, there were shelves of psychiatric texts in English, French, and German. There were ledgers for the hospital's accounts, but I wasn't permitted to open them. I remembered reading somewhere that in 1948, the amount a patient was required to deposit with the hospital prior to entry had been increased from seven to 15 pounds. There were patients of all nationalities. I tried imagining how the place must have looked in 1948, then in 1962, although some of the European-style buildings and the garden and the old pictures were still recognizable today, much had changed. Here were the old switchboards, one from the 40s and another from the 60s. The older must have been one of the first things and I had laid her eyes on when she came here in 1948. Visitors were required to wait in a room to the left of the main entrance in the presence of a security guard, a receptionist, and a switchboard operator whose fingers floated over the red, blue, and green of the bank of buttons, a receiver clamped to one ear. After meeting the doctor, Anayat was informed that she would be staying there for a few days, up to a week, in fact. A nurse took her to her room, bed, cupboard, and a window looking out over the garden and part of another building. There was a telephone, too, incoming calls only. The nurse opened the cupboard, a towel and a set of clothes. Everything was printed with the room number, she explained. Number 28. Her father would drop off more clothes tomorrow. She felt as though she were in another country. She would dream of this room frequently thereafter, for the rest of her life. And every time she woke from it, she would feel that she had just returned from a journey overseas. A machine for administering shocks. Emergency medical kits in metal cases. Medical instruments whose function eluded me. A glass display case for medicines. I spotted strips of blue Ritalin tablets marked C-I-B-A, and then my eye fell on the little bottle of varinol beside it. I asked the attendant if he could open the case for me. Twenty tablets, read the label. There was a warning against taking them without a doctor's prescription. Then, because Allah knew that I was here for a naiad, there was this. Expires, January 1963. I unscrewed the lid and peered at the little pink pills inside. Welcome to episode
0: 70 of the Bullock podcast. I'm Ursula Lindsay, and just now reading to you was Marcia Link-Squaley, my co-host, um, from the work of Iman Marcel, who is our uh, greatly appreciated guest on this week's episode. So hello to you both. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and um we're so excited uh to have you joining us um Iman, we're huge fans uh, of the book that Marsha was just reading from so this was a an translated excerpt um from uh your book uh If Anayet Ezayet in the Footsteps or on the Trail of Anayet Ezayet um and uh, this is a book that we've actually already done an episode about because we both loved it um, so much. And uh, maybe I will let Marsha uh, first introduce you, Amen, and, and then we'll talk a bit more about the book.
1: Yes. And uh, just to note that although last time it was sort of, we spoke rough translations that we'd done ourselves, this was a translation by Robin Mosher, which, which will be published. The English translation is not out yet, but it is forthcoming. So Iman Marcel is a poet, essayist, translator, and literary scholar, professor of Arabic language and literature at the University of Alberta, Canada. She was born in a village in the northern Nile Delta and began publishing poetry while still in high school. She studied Arabic literature at the University of Mansoura from 1986 to 1992, was co-editor of the independent feminist magazine Bint El ard All while doing a master's on the poetry of Adonis and then a PhD at Cairo University, focused on America in Arab travel narratives. Her first poetry collection came out in 1990, and she has since published five more while also working as an academic. Her most recent, Until I Give Up the Idea of Houses, came out in 2013. Although Iman moved to Canada in 1999, she has continued to be a central part of the Egyptian literary scene and indeed the Arabic literary scene writ large. Her co-translation of Wegey Ghali's novel, Beer in the Stuker Club with Rima Reyes, was published in 2013. Iman has also brought out several prose works in the last five years. She translated the poet Charles Simic's memoir, A Fly in the Soup, wrote the short literary How to Guide, How to Mend, On Motherhood and Its Ghosts, which was also translated by Robin, part of the Kefeta series, and most lately In the Footsteps of Anayat Zayet, which won this year's Sheikh Zayed Book Award. It's forthcoming in Robin Mosier's English translation and recently appeared in Richard Jacquemin's French. Uh, Robin Creswell is also translating a selection of Iman's poems that is set to be titled The Threshold and will come out next year. She is now back in Edmonton, but was most recently in Marseille, France, where she held the Albert Camus cha- chair at IMERA, the Institute for Advanced Study uh, of uh, Marseille University, until July 2021, while working on her book, Accent, the Displaced Voice. Thank you again, Amen, for joining us. Thank me. you for the
0: introduction.
1: This was longer than the introduction to you that I, that I gave uh, a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Well, there's there's so
0: much ground to cover. I'm actually holding in my hands the the new French translation, sur uh, les traces de de et Zayettes, and it and it, it it's it's lovely. It reads beautifully. This is from Acte Sud, the, the translation that Marcia just mentioned, and and I, I believe that you were you were just in France partly promoting this, right? Uh,
2: yes. Um... I, I spent almost last two months uh, promoting the French translation and also actually giving uh, readings and interviews because of the Sheikh Zayed Award. So both events took place at the same time.
0: Right. And it, we've, I mean, obviously we've already dedicated an entire episode to the book and we'll link to that in the show notes. And um, you have, you know, been in a way talking about this book now because of all the attention it's received I think a lot but for those listeners who aren't familiar with it I'll maybe just give uh, a quick overview. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I don't want to give away too much about it either because it's a book that's so full of surprises and twists and turns Um, but a few basic facts. Um, The Egyptian novelist Inayat Zayed wrote a novel called Love and Silence. That was published in 1967. By then, unfortunately, Zayet had was had passed, had killed herself four years before that. Um, and you, Iman Marcel, read this book in the early 90s, um, and uh, it was one of those books that we all stumble upon. For you, that really spoke to you, um, and 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 sort of occupied a, a little special place. And the book that you came to write and spent many years, I, I think, writing is a, is a story of looking for Zayet, uh, who, despite her evident talent, had been almost entirely forgotten and, and, and erased, I think, from literary history. Um, and you went looking for her house and her tomb and speaking to her friends and relatives and sort of trying to figure out uh, where she fit into the literary scene of her time and what happened that led to her death. Um, and there are all these wonderful connections that you sort of stumble upon, um, these ways in which, uh, she seems to partly guide you towards finding out certain things about her. Um, I would say this is a work of creative recovery, um, and that one of the things you're doing is figuring out what to do with these gaps and blanks and contradictions. And I would even say in some cases like distortions and, and violations of her story or Uh her work or her life. Um, And uh, I mean, I, I I think it's a wonderful, really special book. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, and partly because one of the, the way in which you fill in these gaps is done with like so much, um, Grace and empathy and respect for her, uh, so it's very moving. Um, and I'll stop there, uh, in with my <laughs> flurry of admiration. But uh, it's it's a great book. Thank
2: you, Ursula. Uh, you're,
0: you're you're welcome. Um, so, I mean, obviously, and it's it's gotten, I think, a wonderful reception. This book. I've had people you know, talk about it to me uh, from Egypt and obviously elsewhere, it's going to be translated, which is wonderful. Um, uh, you, you mention in the book, uh, the way in which Anayat Zayet has been sort of, had been marginalized or sort of cut out of what one would consider the canon of modern Egyptian literature uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, do you Can you talk a bit more about what led to her being sort of like not fitting in or ending up on the sidelines? I think there are so many
2: reasons behind the marginalization of a book or a writer. And in order to understand this, uh, we might have to revisit the way in which the canon itself uh, was created. Um, I mean, we have to understand why and how the Arab literary canon celebrate or exclude some writers. Uh, And we have to understand when and how it was created. So, in general, Arab literary canon was created, in my view, in 19th century, during the Renaissance, late 19th century, early 20th century. The question of identity was very important, as you know. Uh, ideology will play a very important role in the post-colonial era. Uh, During the Abdu'l-Nasser era, where, for example, Anayat Zayat lived and uh, wrote her novel and committed suicide. Um, So when I I think about what is excluded, we can really think about uh, ideology, dominated discourses, um, aesthetic as well, um, which style is celebrated more than others. Uh, and and in, in the case of Anayat, I started to think really about the, person, the persona of the writer. I mean, some writers have, um, have big problem communicating and being part of uh, a literary scene or a group of writers or uh, maybe social class, the bourgeoisie in Anayat case, for example, was a reason depression might be another reason and so on and so forth. But what I want to say here uh, really is um, no one has the authority to remove or add writers or books to the literary canon. Yani, I, I can't imagine this. But reading literature while trying to remain free of ideology and the dominant uh, discourses can illuminate them in a new light. And then they might become uh, more read or more recognized by readers. Is my answer clear?
1: Yeah, I I would just so if if we think about why Latifah Zayed becomes mm-hmm. uh, a part of the literary canon, mm-hmm. uh, um, and and why Inayat does not become a part of the literary canon, or even a part of the sort of the literary club, you know, mm-hmm. um, is is part of that an aesthetic of 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 their of their books, of Absolutely. their personalities? Okay.
2: Aesthetic is very important. I mean, um, look at the opening of the two novels, for example, uh, Marcia. Uh, Latifa Zayat is opening the open door with a a grand scene in a a rally against the the British. Right. While Anayat Zayat Love and Silence is starting with a whispering voice talking about uh, seeing the, the street from the window, a young Nagle uh, is depressed, is mourning the death of her brother, and is having trouble even moving out of bed. So the 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 the, the world in which uh, is is is, is uh, um, depicted on on both opening is is, is, is completely different. Really, um, I can add to this that Latifa Zayed was part of the literary and the political uh, scene at, this, at the time. I mean, she was um, very important in 1946 uh, student movement, for example, against the, the colonialism. She was well-known, uh, and when her novel was published in 1960, she was uh, already uh, a, I mean, uh, a professor of literature, she finished her PhD in, in English literature and also she was the wife of uh, uh, Rashad Rashdi, one of the really important figures in managing uh, Egyptian culture during this time. So looking at these two maps, we are looking at ideology and at uh, the two books and also at the persona of uh, both writers
1: and And would we look at the way that in in which um inayat's novel was finally published and the the mm-hmm. ending the ending it was given is that in a way to make it fit better? I did not
2: uh, prove that the end of love and silence was changed during the process of publication or not, but uh, I believe personally that um Whoever wrote the ten last um, uh, lines in the novel is not an eighties yet. And uh, my my belief is based on the language itself. Um, the, the entire book does not have this kind of language, and suddenly there is a big shift to talk about um, the nineteen fifty two revolution. Uh, the uh, the the light that is coming with uh, the tanks uh, roaming the streets of Cairo and blah 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 this kind of language is not her language. Uh, so I, I, bit, I feel it's much better to look at the, uh, the way in which the novel was published and yet yet submitted her novel as soon as she finished writing it. It took four years before her I mean three years before her death, and the novel was not published, and then another four years after her uh, death. Why the novel was not published is an important question here. And I think I tried to answer this question by looking at the discourse of the uh, publication institution under Abdul Nasser's uh, regime. Uh, the kind of the goals they put uh, in front of them to publish books, uh, the strategies they used to um, Recruit translations, or or to celebrate some writers, and in this map, Aneta Zayat was nobody. Basically, because of the, the, the her style, her story, and because of her position in the culture, she was invisible. Uh, uh, obviously.
1: Although, weren't they supposed to be publishing a book every eight minutes or something at that period? <laughs> so, shouldn't they just take everything?
2: <laughs> they did. Talk uh, lots of boxes that we don't hear anything about now. I mean, if you go to Sural Asbakia, as I used to do uh, in the 90s, for example, you would buy ten books and end up reading only one of them, because the other nine are not good at all, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so uh, the amount of boxes that were published for uh, ideological reason are are huge, and we don't. Go and talk about this box now because they are not important, obviously.
0: I think you have a a lovely expression somewhere in the book where you describe her voice in the book as sort of um, that that it was that, that it was like she was calling from behind a wall, and it was mm-hmm. as if nobody heard her. I mean that there just wasn't um, much of an echo back to her particular voice and style and the story that she told at that time but Mm -hmm. then what I find so interesting is that it is exactly the kind of story that that could find a a lot of interest later on at a different time with a different audience in different circle I mean with yourself and I think probably with others from your description of it Mm -hmm. um and uh I, I mean I I wonder. Do you think that so? So there's a place for her, perhaps now. I, I I'm also curious if there are any plans, given the atten- you know, the success of your book, to have her book republished that you're aware of, or if there's yes. been any interest. Her book
2: actually was republished the same uh, months my book was published about here, oh, and great. it's well read. It's republished a few times already, and you can see um, that. There is a, a good amount of readership and questions about here. Uh, but I want to clarify one one thing here. When we talk about marginalized writers, we are not trying to add them violent, violently to the uh, literary camp. Readers are the ones actually who do this. Our job sometimes is, um, is, is to discuss the literary canon and the work of this uh, marginalized writer or that in the light of this canon. Why, uh, asking questions about why this work was excluded and is it important or not? And and telling the story about how much did it it impact Uh, one reader like me when I read it in 1993, all of this can really uh, re-question what we call literary canon again, plus the 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 enjoyment of really uh, discovering a writer too. Even if the of her novel is not the best novel written ever in Arabic uh, literature, I did not introduce it as as, as 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 such. But I was just saying that there are so many important books that were excluded for reasons we don't know and. We, it's a good idea to try to understand it.
1: I think you, I mean, you talk about her as writing maybe out of out of time, you know, not in sync with her time. Mm -hmm. And and as we read it now, so I haven't read her her novel, but um, to to think about reading instead of a triumphalist narrative about revolution, to read a narrative about somebody being depressed. And looking out through the window, that seems to me today something that I could relate to mm-hmm. very, very closely. Maybe and maybe I wouldn't have in 1963. I, I don't know. I wasn't there. It's true, uh, Marcia. And
2: I want to add to that because I feel there is misunderstanding about any discussion of mar- marginalized writers at the moment, maybe partly because of my book on Annette I actually, I'm not sure if, if my interest personally is in marginalized writers is based on any celebration of marginalization in itself. It's more um, that particular writing fascinates me. And when you examine it next to the canon, you discover that it is marginalized. I mean, it, like the book took my attention before discovering its marginalization. So sometimes a book can can shake you, um, your 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 very being. I mean, um, and this doesn't mean it has to be the best thing you ever read. <laughs> um, it's it's a kind really of uh, a fate or a message from the past that this particular book uh, came to you in, in, in an important moment in your life, as if you are reading something you need. To read, but you didn't know that you needed that much. So in 1993, for a young writer like me, reading a, a book by another woman 30 years before me, uh, trying to capture her uh, agony uh, and her struggle with depression, was absolutely important. It, it gives me this uh, feeling that writing can 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 actually. Uh, in light this this kind of agony and to help us understand it, and and I don't think I uh, I knew this before reading uh, Love and Silence.
1: Mm. I think there are probably also sort of overlapping different literary canons. When I first came to. Beer in the Snooker Club, I guess, which could be, in some sense, marginalized Mm -hmm. from the Egyptian literary canon. To me, it was like a huge book. Everybody I knew had read it. Yes. (laughs) Um. So, so maybe it's marginalized, but maybe in some circles, it's also very important.
0: Well, Uh, and I think also we're talking about everybody having, in a way, a personal canon beyond mm -hmm. that, that. Maybe that's more important. Is is kind of the personal canon that you put together for yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know more than like you say kind of taking these positions and fighting these very explicit battles over the pub you know as if there can never be, you know the public agreed upon one
2: yes yeah, i agree really i mean as i i mentioned in in i wrote in the book uh, in my book on innate i think gratitude is owed not only to great literature uh, I mean, or to the literature uh, selected or created by the canon, but, but, um, but also to all writing, which plays a significant role in how we understand ourselves uh, in a particular moment uh, in our life. And as I wrote, really, uh, when we turn and uh, contemplate our lives, it, it is by these works that we define them. Um, yeah. So for Ghali and Anayat, seriously, my interest in translating Ghali or in tracing Anayat's uh, story was not at the beginning because they are mar- marginalized, but because their writing had impact on me. And I, 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 it, it wasn't until later that I started to see the similarity between them. So, uh and, and the similarity between them, by the way, it wasn't in the first place, a marginalization or depression or even suicide, but the question of individuality. For me, it was a question of individuality, which resonates with me. Um, right. After that, I begin to translate or to to devote years to to look at Inayat, uh, life, and, 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 and so on. So you start from the writing itself and uh, when you dig in uh, behind the book and its writer, you find this marginalization and you try to understand uh, its uh, causes.
0: Yeah. And on this, this question of like individuality um, and sort of where Anayata Azayat fit in and didn't fit in and her being kind of out of her time or out of her place, there was actually there's actually another reading from the from the book that that I think really speaks to that.
1: Yeah, and I'll just go right into that. But why should she remain a captive the early captive of the early '60s? Didn't she herself state that she'd been born at the wrong time? That she dreamed of rubbing herself out and being born again. Let's suppose instead that Anaita Zayet had been a '90s writer. That I'd run into her by chance in Cairo in 1990. Two young women writers who spoke two different languages, or maybe no language at all, with no political project to consume our lives, no collective dream to keep us bright-eyed through the night. There were no literary giants such as Anis Mansour or Yusuf Sabai, but neither was there an oasis prison, just a great vacuum that we gladly turned our backs on. I'd found her repressed and fragile and aloof, wearing her class as a shield. I don't know how she'd see me. Most likely, she couldn't really see anyone outside herself. The truth is that friendship between us had been impossible. If it had been me who'd committed suicide, Anayet wouldn't have been sad so much as remorseful because she hadn't tried to know me. But it was Anayet who had killed herself in January 1993, and what I'd felt was grief and guilt in equal measure because I'd believed in her talent and was waiting for her to live a life of writing, because I had understood her pain but hadn't known how to tell her. A powerful desire to treat her cruelly, maybe the only feeling I hadn't yet had towards Anayat. What if, I asked myself, suppose... Suppose Anayat had continued to pursue meaning through writing, and that this meaning had become her identity. She had never understood what it meant for the state to engineer cultural projects in the post-revolution era, hadn't known of the celebrity artists and famous political activists inside the prisons and outside, and the less famous too, and the networks that connected them, and the battles in which literature and politics and publishing were won. She simply hadn't known. What happened to Anaya? happens frequently. A writer cut off from their peers is transformed into a tragic figure. Their delusions of persecution, of grandeur, of nihilistic despair ballooning in this isolation until they finally come to what awaits them, to an appointment in some moribund cultural institution, to mysticism or bitter resentment, to the self-obsession and puritanical righteousness of the self-made man, or to open support for a murderous regime. They might go back to their family where they believed they would never return, or they might end up a hero after all, the hero who refuses all and any of these paths and steps away from their life. Maybe that's what happened, that Anayet went to war for her individuality and waited for victory in the form of El Kaumeya's acceptance, which is to say a victory granted by the very society against which she fought. Her divorce was a battle won, as was writing a novel and going to work at the German Archaeological Institute. But losing the custody battle was a defeat. The novel's rejection was a defeat. Her best friend's lack of availability was a defeat. Sacrificing love for motherhood was a defeat. Faced with all these defeats, what could a free individual do but take the final leap into the void? Oh, thank you.
2: This is beautiful
0: reading.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for writing it.
0: It's, um, it's something that you do at several points in the book is imagine a little bit beyond i mean what's 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 available what can be proven what what can be known um and it's always done uh so so generously to her and i think so honestly and and also with a lot of um restraint as 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 well as imagination um and uh i i was i was i was wondering as i reread this book now um, and you had such an intimate relationship with her that went on for so long, but wasn't really visible to other people. Now that the book has been published, and you know, it has had actually such a such a great reception. Has that changed your relationship to her? <laughs> oh, <laughs> now that it's public, now explosion. that it's so in the public eye. <laughs> yes. Uh,
2: you know, I. I really am um, familiar with the f- with the usual emptiness after finishing a book any book because you know uh, usually you will you, you finish a book that you lived with um, and occupied your 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 mind for so many years usually but with an um, as soon as I submitted the, the manuscript I I, 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 had a, I had some different feelings, really. I felt that a close friend was suddenly gone. Um, to explain this, you know, um, during the process of working on the book, uh, which took place from uh, 2014 to 2019, I had several habits that were connected to her, uh, such as listening regularly to short-lived singing, uh, talents, for example, mostly women, women from um, you know Egypt who got married or died very early or from Lebanon and Syria who came to Egypt pursuing career but failed and had to go back to their country and we never heard about them before. I was also obsessed with um, like uh, description and visual representations of Cairo geography Uh, in the 50s and 60s. So when I finished the book, um, it was like returning to reality from uh, past to present, from Ainiyat to my own life, uh, from 50s, 60s, and even my own experience in the 90s to my own personal uh, life in in Canada uh, as a mother and academic and writer and blah, blah, blah. So there was really... um, an overwhelming feeling of of being you know a, a little bit out of place a little bit confused for a while uh, but after that when the book came out which by the way i really did not expect the readership or the award or the, uh, the translation i have no idea uh, what was it but i i i, I had great ex- an anxiety about writing this book because i didn't know uh, which kind of readers will be interested even in it. <laughs> it, it? It's like writing a book because it's necessary for you. Uh, so uh, during the last two months with all of these readings and interviews which I'm not familiar with, I usually you know give like two or three readings a year or an interview uh, every few years. but it was so intense. and I think I reached it. Uh, a moment of of really breaking down um, because I felt that talking about the book and about Aniyat is delaying my separation from here. I wanted to be separated from here to resume my other uh, projects. You know, you you are usually involved already in in another, you know, um, question, another book or another uh, a story or or poem and i feel that it is is kind of dominating my my thinking and life but in different way and i think this this kind of of breaking down was just uh, a resistance to continuing talking about the the, the book and to continuing uh, revisiting the process of its writing and that's story and and so on and so forth so <clears throat> I'm not sure if if I can really express my feeling about that, but but what I'm saying is it, it is a complicated relation. You feel so close, you feel as if you are hunted by hair uh, and you you don't know everything about hair, but you also know a lot. Uh, you don't want to speak for hair, but some but you you give yourself the opportunity to imagine hair. So it, the process is very complicated, and after finishing the book, I think I'm the, in the process of really separating myself from here. I don't know how or when, but but I must I must do that uh,
1: to concentrate on my other uh, writing. Mm. Yeah, in a sense, you're like you're her translator to um, I- into the world, not not into any particular language, but you. You stand between her and and others, and others, you know, who want to get to know Anayet are yes. asking you uh, bring us into her world. Tell us about her, um, and that yeah. And I think is a book is is my
2: translation mm. or my my way of of reaching um, to her and understanding her her uh, story. And I, I really think after finishing the book, that's it. I mean, this is what should be. The book is out there. Uh, Anayat is is already uh, known in our culture now. Uh, and, and her uh, novel is, re- is well read. And, and this is really uh, great. Um, even if my main uh, project was not just to bring hair to the uh, literary canon, but this happened already. Um, I, I think my, my book, or my, my dream is if, if my book can help really um, help people relate to an art story and, 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 and be interested in reading the past, uh, this past is, is, is uh, in the archive, is in geography, is in law, the personal law and other law about publication and the culture is actually in the present of uh, uh, foreigners in Egypt during the, uh, before the 1952 revolution and their contribution to our culture. The past has so many layers, I mean. And the interest in reading the past is my main goal. And if the book succeeded relatively in doing this, it should be over for me. I should just go back to my life and, and work on other projects.
0: Well, hopefully, Hopefully. (laughs) well, I I mean, I think the other thing um, that the book does and that everything sort of your whole, all your other projects do in a way is present a model of, I mean, the way you approach your subject Because it's such a mix of different things. It's investigation. It's Mm -hmm. research. It's a literary essay. It's, you know, creative nonfiction. It's all these different things. And that kind of writing, it seems to me, is also like... Uh, points to maybe like a new direction I I mean you do it so well and I think it must be actually so difficult to do it comes across this this sort of flow of different kinds of storytelling is Mm -hmm. is is wonderful and and I and I think maybe opens the way you know to other other people to kind of try this 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 sort of writing which mixes a lot of different genres Mm -hmm. and in fact kind of defies genre and um i I, I think you you talked at the end of the book about inventing new genres i particularly liked the idea of the the text about women who cut their hair (laughs) as a genre yeah Yeah. um and and i think that's something that spans not just this but sort of a, a lot of your work which is in so many genres itself you know poetry and translation and academic work and then you've kind of put so many things into this book you know how how conscious is this decision to sort of disregard genres or mm-hmm. reinvent genres or does it just is that just the way that you think and write kind of mm-hmm. that's what comes out or oh
2: it's a great uh, question I mean um uh, it's not a decision really uh Ursula I I can't imagine a writer you know um uh, Writing while intending to develop a new genre or or pushing the boundaries of known, you know, genres in in, in literature. I, I think my simplest uh, question was how to tell the story of Anayat without making her a model of something, uh, a model of of a female writer or or uh, a woman with. Uh, struggling with depression, or a bourgeoisie woman who is searching for her identity. I just hate labels, <laughs> you know. So I wanted her to be herself, without my speaking for her. I wanted her to emerge through my journey uh, towards her. This is why all of my attempts to write this book at the beginning was, um, I mean, failed basically. I I I, I tried. Uh, few, uh, you know, um, structures or or ways of telling the stories and all failed for me. Um, So I couldn't write a biography. I was very sure it's not an academic book or a novel, Uh, but there was an enlightening moment when I I visualized my own journey toward here, my own search as itself is a main protagonist in the book. And when you have this enlightened moment, you feel as if all of these flying um, fragments are, are filling in, in, in their place, are coming to the right place. Do you know what I mean? So here, I think what the writer uh, faces is to be brave enough to say, this is how I, 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 I want to tell the story, or, or this is how the story is coming to me, actually to be told, and not to be worried about it, how it would be received. That's all. So the questions are what lead me to, to write the book this way, not any intention to challenge uh, the boundaries of different generals or to put different
1: generals on one book or whatever. And in this sense, it, it sort of resonates a lot with sort of the, the long history of, of Arabic literature in which, uh, for a long time, you would, co- you know, come across a classical text and it mm-hmm. contains every single genre uh, imaginable in, in a short span. This
2: is absolutely true because, I mean, I think the very recent uh, two, two, two or three decades in Arabic literature, you feel like a novel and uh, poetry are dominating the literary uh, landscape, right? While actually, if if you just have a question about what you are doing in this book, and you you are trying to find some validity or, or some you know something to support you uh, with the, an anxiety about the genre, you look back and you find in classical Arabic uh, uh, literature that non-fiction was actually very important, and not just nonfiction, but uh, but this kind of uh, cross genres um, inside one book. And as I, I, as I uh, mentioned in, in, in the book, that uh, writing tarajim or biography in classical Arabic literature, uh, the biographer will go from you know the story of the person to the history of, of his or her tribe to talk about uh, figures of this tribe to to uh, bring to us some poetry written um, during his time, and so on and so forth, as if the old biographer was actually trying to read the context or or, or the, the the environment in which his um, his uh, uh, biography is taking place. So uh, and also actually in modern. Uh, world literature. There are some writers whom I admire a lot, like uh, uh, W. G. Sebald, for example. Uh, I, I feel I, I feel am I'm impacted by his uh, writing. Even my my book is completely different. But but there are writers who gives you this uh, uh, you know um, this this feeling that you can make it you can make it out of what is you know uh, known. And don't don't be scared, that's all. Mm-hmm. So reading Siebel was really important for me.
1: Yeah, I don't know why, but I'm very excited to see this book, the Anayta Zayat book, translated into German. I don't know anything about the German literary scene, but if they produce mm-hmm. Sebald and and of course there there is the whole section that has to do with But just to
2: remember that Siebel was not really worried even in Germany. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he became worried in English. Uh, before he was recognized in his own culture, right? Mm. So, uh, so this this kind of you know m- books moving around and being recognized a little bit late or or, or very uh, early as as soon as 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 it's published, you know, it's something I don't understand really. But but I I mean Zibald had impact on world literature before he was recognized even in his culture.
1: Mm. So I wanted to ask about this, the book that you're working on now, uh, Luckna, mm-hmm. about uh, accent and, and is that whether that's an, a, an academic book or um, a, a popular <laughs> book or, or if we can't even ask that kind of question. Oh, this is really a good question because, uh, because I,
2: you know, when I went to Marseille to work on this book, um, Uh, I had like a a very clear idea about the structure of the book. I wrote already uh, three chapters and I published two of them. Uh, So I was feeling like confident, right? Mm. But when I went to to Marseille, I I had the opportunity to read and explore and and go for long walks and think about it. And I felt my original naive but not incorrect view might be simply that linguistics accent is a is a uh, parameter of language, right, uh, which varies among uh, language speakers and contexts to indicate or to in- index uh, social class, ethnic groups, uh, and so on and so forth. And I changed my view of the book completely during my stay in Marseille. And this is what patients can do. To, uh <laughs> to write mm-hmm. like we have to really wait for for a moment to to, to revisit what we are doing already and to question it right So I think my my original uh, project was leaning towards the academic um, academic uh, uh, search and writing but now it's not. Uh, I'm actually more interested in popular culture when I uh, examine the question of accent. And also, I'm very interested in so many stories that uh, are told uh, by uh, immigrants, for example, living in Canada and U.S. and uh, Berlin and Marseille and some other cities that I kept a record of. And I don't know how will it look like, but I'm thinking about it now as nonfiction book that is that includes lots of stories, sense of humor. And also, um, uh, and also, research. I mean, res- mm. research is a big, big factor in the book. And some personal stories as well about accent. I think really, it's a very uh, like it, it's not it's not the one of the main factors in the book. Okay. Maybe my question about accent came from my. Uh, it, my my really experience as as someone who left Egypt to U.S. age thirty almost without knowing English, right? Mm-hmm. So I struggled on my own to learn English and to make it you know to make it a professional language to teach literature in English or to be part of the academic community was really tough for me because I wasn't privileged. I didn't go to English school and blah blah blah. So uh, so maybe lots of questions came from my uh my own experience really in, in facing accent in feeling ashamed about my accent um but i'm not interested in telling my own stories in this book mm-hmm. i'm letting other people
0: uh tell their stories i'm trying to imagine this book and it's it, so- it uh, it's it seems like such a huge topic um and obviously of interest to almost, I I mean, to, to everyone, because. Everyone I, hope so. I hope so. I mean, hope <laughs> so. I mean, I feel like language goes straight to our heart and our gut. Like we all have a lot of feelings mm-hmm. about language and, and maybe accent even more than language, mm-hmm. because it's like a little bit even more personal than just the language mm-hmm. that you speak. You know, I, um, but you
2: feel also like, seriously, maybe I'm so excited about this book because it's my project now, but. I am fascinated with the contradictory that uh, or contradiction that accent can uh, can can bring to our eyes right so in in one of the chapters in, in, in my book I'm actually exploring the discourse of Arab nationalism and how it was expressed and which accent was dominating the expression and when you do this, you feel that there is big contradiction between the content and the uh, the, the, the way this content is expressed in language. Right? Mm. Um, one of the things that really are huge for me now, but I, I, I hope I will uh, start writing this chapter soon, is about seduction in, in cinema and accent. I want to actually create a model of seduction <laughs> that that can be a reference to see how how cinema is treating women or or depicting them through accent. Can you give us an example? I have an example in my mind. Like seriously the, the letter the sound of ha in Arabic mm-hmm. is all the time um, is all the time in the core of the depiction of, of seduction. Uh, so um, uh, Protagonists who are uh, playing roles of like belly dancers or um, women who are trying to you know take a husband from his wife and and uh, threatening the, the peace of of middle class society usually have uh, there is a stress on the pronunciation of ha. And I watch it so many uh, films just to to make sure I'm not crazy. <laughs> and, and, uh, and they prove to me that I'm actually in the right track. What else is there? It's not just the clothes or, or, or uh, nudity. It's also accent uh, to uh, express uh,
1: seduction. And, and to su- express what kind of woman this is? A, a, an absolutely. outsider woman coming in to yeah to absolutely you can distinguish
2: between uh, nouveau rich accent and 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 the, the bourgeoisie accent in general in Egyptian cinema for example you can see something uh, like I call it imagined accent and so I'm asking a very simple question is between accent in our songs and the cinema. Uh, a, a, a valid one. I, it doesn't exist anywhere. Actually, it doesn't. I mean, I am. I'm giving you a very interesting uh, example that that fascinates me. Um, <clears throat> and this example is uh, of a Lebanese singer who was. Um, j- just to give me a second, because I forgot her name.
0: Okay. You know, I'm starting to think about. Um... In Jordan, there's a lot of really interesting things. Mm -hmm. In Jordan, they've kind of invented a Bedouin This is exactly what I'm trying to talk about, actually. I mean, she's a
2: Chinese
0: singer, but I forgot her name. Let me, you remember her name? I don't remember her name either, but there are, there's these singers who came to Jordan and became really popular and they, and they've if you want to use that word i don't know if that's fair but like a, a bedouin accent and the bedouin accent Al-Lahja itself was kind of like emphasized to emphasize your uh east bank uh, jordanianness your bedouin jordanianness perfect um mm-hmm. and there's there's an amazing article that was published in heber you know the the jordanian magazine mm-hmm. online magazine mm-hmm. that's a really long article that's all about the different pronunciations of cough in Jordan, whether it's, you know, ca or, or, or with the, you know, the glottal stop, mm-hmm. like you don't pronounce it. And, and, and people basically, like the different significations it has and how like people pronounce it differently in different social contexts, like they want to seem more or less Bedouin, more or less macho you pronounce Mm -hmm. it a certain way with other men and you pronounce it more Mm -hmm. softly if you're with women Mm -hmm. and you're trying to appeal to women. Please send
2: me this article (laughs) Yes. I will. I will. I I thought it was great. uh, Maybe it's clear what I'm trying to say. I mean, when you think about imagined accent, like Bedouin accent, for example, or Palestinian accents, there are uh, some Egyptian uh, films about Palestine, right? Before Palestinian cinema emerged, uh Syrian and Egyptian cinema try to be to, to raise the, the 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 Palestinian question through uh, films and they are trying to depict Palestinian accent and when you see it it has nothing to do with any Palestinian accent really so i think discussing this kind of imagined accents would be would be very interesting
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah absolutely well, when is this? When? When? What is the, What is the timeline for this book? In my opinion, three years or more. <laughs> I published the first well,
2: piece on 2010. Yeah, uh, but but really after after uh, rethinking the project and being excited about about other things, uh, and and trying to figure out what is this book about exactly. I feel as if I am at the very beginning again. So, yeah, so maybe three years, hopefully. That's
1: good. It gives us something to look forward to. (laughs) Thank you. All right. And now we're going to read from some of Imen's poetry from her most recent collection, Until Giving Up the Idea of Houses, which came out in 2013, and which I remember very well, because um, uh, many years, uh, Arab Lit does a, a roundup of asking different authors what their favorite book was that year. And I do remember in 2013, um, a, a large number of people said this book was their favorite. So Iman is going to read it first in Arabic, and then I will read the, uh, Robin Creswell's translation.
2: استبدلته بحبر قديم وكراس أسود حدث ذلك قبل أن أنسى الصفحات على مقعد قطار كان من المفروض أن يوصلني إلى البيت وكان كلما وصلت إلى مدينة بدأ لي أن بيتي في مدينة أخرى تقول أولجا من دون أن أحكي لها ما سبق البيت لا يصبح بيتاً إلا لحظة بيعه تكتشف احتمالات حديقته وغرفه الواسعة في عيون السمسار تحتفظ بكوابيسك تحت السقف نفسه لنفسك وسيكون عليك أن تخرج بها في حقيبة أو اثنين على أحسن الفروض. ألجا تسمت فجأة ثم تبتسم مثل ملكة تتباسط مع رعاياها بين ماكينة القهوة في مطبخها وشباك يطل على زهور. زوج أولجا لم يرى مشهد الملكة وربما لهذا لا يزال يظن أن البيتها والصديق الصديق الوفي عندما يصبح أعمى أرقانه تحفظ خطواته وسلماته ستحميه برحمتها من السقوط في العتمة أبحث عن مفتاح يضيع دائما في قعر الحقيبة حيث لا تراني أولجا ولا زوجها حيث أتدرب في الحقيقة حتى أتخلى عن فكرة البيوت كل مرة تعود إليه وتراب العالم على أطراف أصابعك تحشر ما استطعت حمله في خزائنه مع ذلك ترفض أن تعرف البيت بأنه مستقبل الكراكيب حيث أشياء ميتة كانت قد بدت في لحظة ما تفاوضاً مع الأمل ليكن البيت. هو المكان الذي لا تلاحظ البتة إضاءته السيئة. تتسع شروخه حتى تظنها يوماً بديلاً للأبواب.
1: That's beautiful. Thank you. The Idea of Houses I sold my earrings at the gold store to buy a silver ring in the market. I swapped that for old ink and a black notebook. This was before I forgot my pages on the seat of a train that was supposed to take me home. Whenever I arrived in a city, it seemed my home was in a different one. Olga says, without my having told her any of this, your home is never really home until you sell it. Then you discover all the things you could do with the garden and the big rooms, as if seeing it through the eyes of a broker. You've stored your nightmares in the attic and now you have to pack them in a suitcase or two at best. Olga goes silent and then smiles suddenly, like a queen among her subjects, there in the kitchen between her coffee machine and a window with a view of flowers. Olga's husband wasn't there to witness this regal episode. Maybe this is why he still thinks the house will be a loyal friend when he goes blind, a house whose foundations will hold him steady and whose stairs, out of mercy, will protect him from falls in the dark. I'm looking for a key that always gets lost in the bottom of my handbag, where neither Olga nor her husband can see me drilling myself in reality so I can give up the idea of houses. Every time you go back home with the dirt of the world under your nails, You stuff everything you will able to carry with you into its closets. But you refuse to define home as the future of junk, a place where dead things were once confused with hope. Let home be that place where you never notice the bad lighting. Let it be a wall whose cracks keep growing until one day you take them for doors. Thank you. Thank you
0: both. I never know what to say after hearing a really You're good just poem supposed to read. snap your fingers. fingers. Come on, like <laughs> silence. <that. laughs> so, you just kind of want to let it sort of set, settle. Um it's lovely. Well, thank you very much um for joining us today, Iman. My pleasure. <laughs> uh it's it's really been a pleasure um and um We'll put uh, links to to all of your work, of course, in in the show notes for people who want to uh, find uh, the, the different ones that are available in different languages. Um, and uh, thanks to our listeners, as usual, and also to the Shakeside Book Award for uh, supporting uh, you know this particular episode. And um, it's 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 really it's really been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you. I, I had fun. Definitely. <laughs> that that's great. I'm happy to hear yes. that. That's wonderful. Awesome. Um, and 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 uh, and uh, I hope uh, you continue to enjoy this very exciting new project that that has you has you all fired up, and that we're all um, going to now be looking forward to. <laughs> <You're up. laughs> yeah.